Well, good morning, everyone. He is risen. Amen. Amen. I hope that you are filled in your heart with joy because of the fact that we celebrate a risen, exalted Christ this morning. Amen. He is our hope. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, as we have just sung, we are overflowing with gratitude in our hearts for your great redemption of sinners such as us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Father, that is our focus this morning. And I pray that, Lord, as we look at your word, that you would, Lord, encourage our hearts to see Christ in a greater way this morning, his glory, the glory of his resurrection, and thus the justification of sinners as a result of that. I pray that we might be moved to celebration, to adoration, to wanting to live for Christ and tell about Him on this earth in the light of what we will look at this morning. I pray for anyone who is here who is not, has not given their hearts to You, Lord, who have not committed their lives to You, that today would be the day of salvation where they would see Christ anew, afresh, in a saving way. Father, may they come to realize that He can deliver them from the penalty of their sin and from the power of their sin in one day when Jesus returns from the presence of sin. Father, help us to see Christ this morning. Be glorified, Lord. I pray for the universal church today, all over the world, the universal church of all of those who have turned from their sins and put their faith in this risen Christ, that they would be encouraged this weekend, that our persecuted brethren in other countries as well would be renewed and refreshed by a reminder of the fact that because Christ is risen, that they have hope that goes beyond this present world into a future, literal, physical kingdom on earth reigning with Him. Father, remind their hearts of that. Remind us of that this morning as well. That our citizenship is not of this earth, but it is in heaven, and we eagerly anticipate our risen Savior who will transform our physical bodies and give us new glorified bodies. Father, help us to long for that, and that this morning would help us in that endeavor. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 15. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 15 through chapter 2 and verse 10 is our passage for this morning. We're going to look at this passage big picture, but I hope it will be an encouragement to you. And I've titled this message, The Power of Christ's Resurrection. The Power of Christ's Resurrection. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. This is the Word of God. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet, 
and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved." And raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This is the word of the living God. Amen. What a powerful, powerful passage, beloved, wasn't it? You know, what we have here is essentially a a prayer. A prayer by the Apostle Paul. And this prayer includes, as we saw in verse 16, a, a thanksgiving He is full of gratitude for these Ephesian believers because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and because of their love for all the saints. They have given evidence of the fact that they have experienced God's gospel transforming work in their hearts and that the fact that they love one another. But it's also, in addition to being an expression of gratitude, it's also a petition. It is a, a prayer for His fellow brothers and sisters in Christ For spiritual understanding. For spiritual eyes to see the glories of what God has done for them in Christ Jesus. See, Paul feels the need to to pray like this because of the amazing things that God has already accomplished in the lives of his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Our brother, Pastor Alex, read verses 1 through um, 14 earlier. And you know, verses 3 through 14 are one sentence in the original Greek. One sentence. Just with Paul bursting forth into praise for all that God has done. He blesses God because He has blessed us first. Paul is full of, of just joy. And as he contemplates the glories of what God has done, and he bursts forth into praise. You know, I was an English major back in the day. I know that it doesn't sound like it sometimes. (laughs) But you know what? I would have never gotten away with a sentence like this in verses 3 through 14. I mean, but that's this is how you write and you speak when you're so moved by God's majesty, right? I mean, you can't even pause to take a breath. Our brother read that earlier, and, and I was hoping he wouldn't even take a breath, because that was the, the sense of, of verses 3 through 14, right? So this is what Paul is doing. There have been some amazing things. This is why, God, why Paul praises God, because he's so moved by how God has blessed us. Now notice in verse 4, he's moved by the fact that God has chosen us in Christ. In verse 5, by the fact that God has adopted us as His children, 
Verses at the end of verse 7 into verse 8, he praises God because he has redeemed us and forgiven us. In verse 8, he has lavished his grace upon us. In verse 9, he has made known to us the mystery of his will. And notice verse 11, God has made us his inheritance. We, the church, the people of God, the redeemed, those who have turned from our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ, are God's inheritance. Verse 13, he has sealed us with his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee, beloved, of our salvation, that we are secure in Christ all the way to the end of the Christian life until Christ returns. Oh, Paul is is blessing God because God has lavished His, His gracious blessings upon us in and through Jesus Christ to the praise of God's glory. In fact, if you were to summarize verses 3 through 14, you might summarize them this way. God has a great plan. He fulfills this great plan in and through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he carries out this plan to the praise of his glory. He says that three different times. Verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14. The ultimate purpose of all that God has done is his glory. And we are the beneficiaries of that, right? Our good. Our good. And so as Paul reflects on what God has done, he's moved to thanksgiving. He's moved to to praise, but he's also moved to a petition. Because if these Christians, beloved, understand the weightiness of what God has done in Christ Jesus, then they would live all the more for the glory of God on this earth, right? That's why he prays for them. Because it's going to make an impact in the way that they live. We're going to see this later in chapters 4 through 6. And so he prays for greater spiritual insight that they might understand three precious things. And I want you to notice these. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Praise for spiritual perception so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? Notice the three specific uh, prayer requests that He has, if you will. The three precious things that He prays for them about. That they might know the hope of God's calling in verse 18. He's talked about God's calling. They might understand the, the hope, the sure hope that they have in light of the fact that God has called them and redeemed them. What are the riches of the glory of of God's inheritance in the saints? He wants them to understand that they are God's inheritance, that they are valued by God, that they are the redeemed of, of God, that they belong to God, that we are His inheritance and the preciousness of what that is. But thirdly, I want you to notice this in verse 19. He wants them to know what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us, who believe. Paul says, I want you to comprehend, to to come to grips with just how powerful and mighty God is. And in order to emphasize the greatness of the power of God, he uses six different words for power in verses 19 and verse 20. Five different words for power appear in verse 19, if you notice. Greatness, megathos, from which we get mega, great, power, working, strength, and might. Five words in verse 19 to emphasize God's power. And then the sixth one in verse 20, which he brought about 
from the, the word from which we get energy from. Energizing. He brought about in Christ. So what is Paul doing? He's piling on words to express the, the grandeur and the greatness of the power of God. And he wants to help them. He wants to pray that they would understand this. Now I want you to notice this and listen carefully. He's going to expand upon the greatness of God's power toward us who believe in verse 19. But he wants to remind them and us that what God has done for us, listen to me, is the result and the byproduct of what God has done in Christ first and foremost. It begins with Christ. Always. There is no salvation apart from what Christ has done. And so verses 19 through 23 is, a, is, an, is a, the ultimate parenthetical, if you will. The ultimate parenthetical. You know, normally when you think about a, a parenthetical statement, what do you think about? Something that is important, but perhaps somewhat secondary in nature? Not in this case, beloved. Not in this case. This is the ultimate parenthetical statement. And so what I want us to see this morning is Paul's prayer. That Paul prays that Christians might see the greatness of God's power from two perspectives. From two perspectives. And beloved, my prayer is that as we see the greatness of God's power from these two perspectives, that one, for those of us who are in Christ, who have turned from our sins and put our faith in Jesus, that this would be something, a message that would move your affections towards a greater desire to adore and worship Christ and celebrate Him today. And not only today, but that you would want to live for Him and tell a lost world about Him, that He has risen indeed and that there is hope for them. My other prayer has been, for those of you who don't know Christ this morning, well, maybe you are visiting us this morning and you've heard message after message. Maybe this is your once-a-year visit to a church. Listen, I have been praying that God would move in your heart so that as you see the glory of Christ's resurrection and the power of God in that, that you would be moved to confess your sins to God and to seek forgiveness for your sins found only in Christ Jesus. That you would confess Him as Lord and be saved from your sins. So we want to see, first of all, God's great power from the perspective of of the fact that God's great power was shown in Christ. We see, first of all, God's great power shown in Christ in verses 19 through 23. Paul says, you want to know how great God's power is? Look at what God the Father did in Christ. Look at Christ. Look at his resurrection. That's what he begins with in verse 19. He says, which he brought, he, meaning God, which he brought about in Christ. Let me show you the surpassing greatness of God's power. Look at what he did in Christ. What did he do? He raised him from the dead in verse 20, right? He raised his son from the dead. That's speaking of Christ's physical resurrection. That God the Father raised His Son physically, bodily, from the dead. An amazing, amazing truth. Please note something that is often missed here. Paul doesn't spend time here defending, persuading, trying to prove the fact of the resurrection, does he? What does he do? 
He simply prays that their eyes would be enlightened, open to the great power of God shown in the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because that's what it is. It's historical fact. You say, how do you know? Were there witnesses? Answer? Yes, there were witnesses. Account after account of eyewitnesses who saw Jesus in, in risen bodily form, physical form, having risen from the dead. Matthew chapter 28, verses 5 and 6 speaks about Mary Magdalene and Mary going to the tomb where Jesus had been, had been put. And there's an angel there and he says, who are you looking for? I know you're looking for Jesus. He is not here. He is what? Risen. He is risen. And they go and they tell others about him. And then come Peter and, and the disciple whom Jesus loved, the apostle John, right? And they bear witness to the fact that Jesus is no longer there as well. Then there's Luke chapter 24, verse 15, where Jesus appears to two of his followers who are on the road to a town named Emmaus. And initially they don't recognize Jesus, but eventually they do. And they bear witness of the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. And we wouldn't have time to look at all of the other accounts. Luke chapter 24, verse 39, where he appears to a whole group of people who bear witness to the fact that he's risen from the dead. And then in Acts chapter 1, in verse 3, we are told that Jesus, over a period of 40 days, intermittently was talking to his disciples, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, speaking to them of the things concerning the kingdom of God. He appeared, beloved, to individuals, to small groups, to big groups, even 1 Corinthians 15 says, to 500 brethren at a time. You think that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is factual? Absolutely it is. I don't care what the skeptics or doubters say out there. The biblical account says that Jesus rose from the dead. Was it just an illusion? Did he just appear to, 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 have been, to, to rise? No. The biblical account tells us that it was a physical, bodily resurrection. How do you know? Jesus ate with them. Post his resurrection, didn't he? Jesus talked with them. Jesus drank. Jesus did all of, the, all of the things that a normal human person does after having risen from the dead. Jesus discussed theology with them. Jesus discussed the kingdom of God with various individuals. They went to Christ's seminary post his resurrection for 40 days, his disciples did, and they saw Jesus and interacted with him in bodily, physical form. So the resurrection is a historical fact, this is what we are celebrating today, aren't we, beloved? Our risen Jesus Christ. But there's more to God's great power in having raised His Son from the dead, isn't there? There's more. Because we know that back in Genesis 3, what happened? Our fir the first man, Adam, fell into sin and plunged humanity into sin so that every single human being born after Adam is by nature a sinner, and we prove it by the way that we live apart from God, right? Disobeying the Lord. And you've read, haven't you, the narratives, those genealogies in Genesis and then after that, and in Luke and Matthew, what happens? There's this vicious cycle of such and such beget such and such. And such and such lived X amount of years. And such and such, what? Died. Such and such beget such and such. And this person lived X amount of years. And this person, what? Died. 
over and over again, there's this vicious cycle in the, in the scriptures as we read the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, and our hearts cry out, when, when is that one going to come who is going to, to set the captives free from sin's power and death's domination? When is that vicious cycle going to be broken? Beloved, Jesus broke that vicious cycle by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. He did that. Paul wants him to understand that. Death is the ultimate consequence and the result of sin, personal or done to us. Romans 6.23 says, that For the wages of sin is death. The resurrection, beloved, should remind us that every single person born into the world is hopeless because every single person is dead in their sin. But, Romans 6.23 also says this, that there is hope. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord. Because Jesus rose from the dead, there is forgiveness of sins, and there is hope for you to be reconciled to God, your Creator. Because of Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 11, verse 25, listen to these words, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's the question for us this morning, isn't it? Some of us have believed in this. Some of us are presently believing in this. Even through our sufferings and our trials, we believe in Jesus Christ and we know that we have a sure hope in Him because He's risen and He's exalted. But do you, the rest of you, my friend, who haven't come to know Jesus, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life this morning? Oh, can I plead for you or plead with you that this morning you would seek His face That you would confess your sins to God. That you would see yourself as a sinner that you are who desperately needs to be forgiven and reconciled to your Maker. Oh, may you see Christ in a new saving way today. And so God shows us His great power, beloved, in Christ and that He raised Him from the dead in verse 20, but He's not done. In verse 20, in the middle of verse 20, notice, he also tells us that God shows us his great power and that he exalted Christ, verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. How do we see God's power at work in Christ? Not only in the fact that He raised Him from the dead, verse 20, but also in that He exalted His Son. How? By seating Him at His right hand. You know what that signifies, that right hand? It's the position of highest rank, highest prominence, highest preeminence. There's no one greater than Jesus. And that is how God the Father wants it and has designed it. He's placed Him in the highest position of honor. And how high has He elevated Christ? He has seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Oh, it doesn't get any higher than that, right? That is the ultimate courtroom. The ultimate courtroom. The heavenly places. The throne room of God. And at His right hand is His Son, who is elevated above anything and anyone. Notice verse 21 again. He is far above 
All rule. I mean, Paul loves to pile on words far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What is Paul's point? There is none greater than Jesus. He's the risen, exalted one. That's who he is. There's no physical or spiritual entity greater than him. There is no weak or strong thing, small or big, greater than Jesus Christ. There is no name, past, present, or future. There's no ruler, no philosopher, no so-called God with a little g that you can ever bring up that is greater than Christ. There's no other name that has been given among men where we might be saved. That is the name of Christ because He is the greatest. He has the greatest place of prominence. He is at God's right hand in the heavenly places. None are greater than Christ. No one is. That's Paul's point here. And he just keeps piling on words one after another. And he's not done. Look at verse 22. And he, God the Father, put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. How does God's great power, how is it shown in Christ? He's raised Him from the dead. He's exalted Christ to the highest place of prominence. He has subjected all things under Christ's feet. All things. That word in verse 22 translated, put all things. is a is military terminology. It comes from two words, to arrange and under. That means that God has, has arranged everything under Jesus Christ. Everything as, is at His footstool, if you will. Everyone is submitted to Christ. Also the church, middle of verse 22, God gave Christ as head over all things to the church. You know what that word head there is? It's a metaphor for authority, for sovereign ruler. Jesus is the head, the sovereign ruler over His church. Beloved, listen, God has exalted His Son and given Him all authority in heaven and on earth. That is why Jesus said in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, He said, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. All authority belongs to the Son. In John chapter 3, verse 35, He said, the Father, God the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. His meaning His hand, Christ. Christ's hand. John 17, verse 2, in the upper room discourse, Jesus says that the Father has given Him authority over all flesh. There's no creature, beloved, that is autonomous. You can live that way if you want. You can live that way as if you're autonomous and free, as if there is no creator-creature distinction. You simply live for yourself. You can choose to live that way for a time. But listen to me, ultimately, you will stand before Christ someday and give an account for why you didn't trust Him and you didn't follow Him and obey Him. You will stand before Christ someday. He has all authority. He has been given all authority by His Father. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says, God raised Christ from the dead and gave Him glory. That is, honor. He's worthy of all praise so that your faith and hope are in God. God raised Christ from the dead and gave Him glory. Acts 2.36, God, the Father, made Jesus both Lord and Christ. He's Master. He's Lord. He's Messiah, which is another way for saying He is King. God has put forth His King upon Zion, His holy mountain. Jesus is the King. 
And the ultimate passage, one of my favorite passages, Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, says this, God, the Father, highly exalted Christ. Not just exalted Him. Highly, super abundantly exalted Christ. And bestowed on Christ the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God the Father has elevated His Son. God the Father is glorified when His Son is exalted, made much of in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the hearts of spiritually dead sinners. The more that we elevate Christ and we live to exalt Christ, the more we glorify God the Father, right? He's pleased. And what that passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11 through 11 tells us is that one day, my friend, listen, one day every knee will bow. Every knee, either in loving worship because you have trusted in Christ and you've seen Him as your Savior and as a good Master, or you will bow in devastating judgment because you rejected the only sacrifice for your sins, Christ. But every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, either in joyful worship or devastating judgment judgment and so paul prays that these christians might comprehend the greatness of god's power supremely shown in the resurrection exaltation of christ and in god subjecting all things under christ's feet now i ask you christian i ask you why is this comprehension so important for you and i as believers this morning and the answer is this Because the more that you and I live mindful and worshipful in the light of Christ's resurrection and exaltation, and as the one to whom all things, under whom all things are submitted to, the more you will live victoriously in your Christian life. It begins with seeing daily your Savior. Amen? Not just a Savior who went to the cross as the great sin-bearer and wrath-absorber of your sins, but as the one who also conquered sin on your behalf by rising from the dead. The one who holds the highest place of honor. The one who is exalted. There are implications for the way that we live, Christian. Today, as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, the more that we understand the beauty and the amazing nature of what Jesus did, the more that we will live victoriously in the Christian life. Fast forward with me to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. And I want you to see this. We need to live in the light of Christ's resurrection and exaltation, beloved. Paul, again, in chapter 3 of Ephesians verse 20, bursts forth into praise yet again. I mean, this man is like continually prayerful and continually praising and blessing God in the light of the fact that God has blessed us. He says in 3.20, Now to him, speaking about God the Father, who is able, and here he goes again, piling on words, who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. I mean, Paul can't describe in words how moved he is by the power of God. But notice, he connects it then to us as Christians, according to the power that works within us. What? What is that all about? Whoa! 
Are you saying that, that I, as a Christian, have been given a measure of power so that I would live the Christian life uh, victoriously in obedience to the Lord? Yes. Who has been given to us? Back in chapter 1 and verse 14, we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, right? We have been given power from on high, beloved. The Spirit of God lives in every Christian permanently during his lifetime to empower us to live the Christian life victoriously. And that's why Paul builds on this. He builds on this. That as you understand that God has empowered you as a Christian to live victoriously for his name, then you will walk worthy of his calling. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore... Therefore, in the light of God's great call, in the fact, in the light of everything that God has done for you, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, Christian, to walk, which is a metaphor for your lifestyle, the way that you live, to walk or live in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Paul says, when you understand the glories of the gospel, centered on the person and the work of Christ, his atoning death on the cross, his glorious exaltation, the fact that all things are subjected under his feet, and one day those things are going to culminate under the lordship of Christ. When you understand those things, you will be all the more moved and propelled to live in a manner worthy of God's call. And he goes on. We don't have time to look at this in depth, but in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, he talks about the walk of in unity amongst Christians. Not only the, not just the absence of conflict among us, in, in the, uh, but, but also the, the presence of common purpose and cohesiveness as we move in one direction together for the greater progress of the gospel, using our spiritual gifts so that we see one another conform to the image of Christ and we mature in Jesus Christ, the walk in unity. The more that you understand that Christ has been exalted and you live in the light of that reality, you will seek to exalt him in the way that you walk in unity with your fellow brothers and sisters, serving, using your spiritual gifts to build up the others in the church for the glory of God. Where does that come from? It is fueled by the realization that the exalted Christ has called you to walk in unity, right? And then chapter 4, verses 17 through the end of the chapter. He talks about the, the walk that is not like the world. That we are to be discarding sin and putting on the, the mind of Christ and the character of Christ. Why, Christian? Because you have been empowered to do so. And then in chapter 5, he talks about walking in love. Loving one another. That you exalt Christ as a Christian, the risen, exalted Christ, by the way that you love others, the way that you practice reconciliation with others, the way that you extend forgiveness and, and ask for forgiveness. Why? Because God in Christ has forgiven you, right? It's the walk in love, the walk in forgiveness, the walk in reconciliation. And then he talks in chapter 5 later on about, about striving to live joyfully and, and thankful lives full of gratitude because of what God has done in Christ Jesus, walking by the Spirit of God. And then he talks about the family, the home in chapter 5, that where there is a husband who, who lives in the light of Jesus' resurrection and exaltation, you will be a husband who loves your wife as Christ loves the church. Listen to me, if you are a husband who is not spiritually leading your family, who is not loving your wife as Christ loves the church, then you have a Jesus problem. 
You need to revisit Jesus' resurrection and exaltation and be reminded of the fact that in the light of that, he has called you to be the spiritual leader of your home and you are to represent in your marriage and your love for your wife a picture of Jesus and his church, how he loved his church and sacrificially gave himself for her, right? Jesus being risen and exalted has implications for everything, doesn't it? For wives as well in chapter 5. Wives who have their sights set on Jesus' resurrection and exaltation and are subjected under the Lord of the church, will be a, she will be a woman who will submit herself to her husband, love her husband, not because she has to, not because this is a lame man and this is the, her lot in life, not because he's perfect, not because he always does everything that she wants him to do, not because he's always faithful, but because she's submitted to who first? To Jesus to the risen, exalted one. And so she will love her husband and she will submit her husband, willingly arrange herself under her husband. Why? Because ultimately that is a reflection of her submission to her king, right? Christ, Christ. We will live to str- we will strive to be a light in the workplace, in society. We will seek to glow for Christ, beloved. People who have, who are captivated by the risen, exalted Christ, who, who are who are essentially an answer to the prayer of Paul here, and we're comprehending who Christ is, will be people who will want to make Christ known on this, in this world. We will be disciple-making disciples. We can go on and on about the implications of having a right view of Jesus, right? See, Paul knows that if we grasp the greatness of God's power in Christ, then we will live in the light of this power. Amen? He knows this, so he prays for them about this. And by implication, us as well today. But Paul is not done. God's power is supremely shown from the perspective of what God has done in Christ, his resurrection and exaltation, but now from the perspective of how God's power is shown in us. Secondly, God's great power is shown in us in verses 1 through 10. Remember that back in verse 19, He had begun to pray that these Christians might understand God's power, God's power toward us who believe. But he went on this parenthetical awesome statement, right? But as I told you, it wasn't just an insignificant parenthetical statement. For if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, if he's not exalted, if all things are not subjected under Christ, we have no hope of personal salvation from our sins. Beloved, without the resurrection... There's no salvation. None. Isn't that how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17? He says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. You're still in your sins. But he goes on in 1 Corinthians 15 to make the point that Christ has been raised. And that is highly significant for us, right? Because if God, beloved, follow me. If God, according to chapter 1 of Ephesians, if God raised Jesus from physical death, then God has raised us from spiritual death in Him. In Him. One flows from the other. Christ rises, and we in union with Christ, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, are raised from spiritual death. And I want you to see this. This is God's power shown in us in verses 1 
through 10. This is a, a powerful passage, a powerful portrait in verses 1 through 3 especially, but 1 through 10 of our former condition, what God did, and why He did it. It is awesome. We ought to return to this passage again and again. In fact, the whole book of Ephesians, of course. In fact, the whole Bible, right? This is a, this is a great passage. One of my favorite passages in all of, all of Scripture. You know, I remember being in a Bible study once where a bunch of people were just sharing testimonies, sharing about what God had done in our lives. And we began to reminisce, some of us, about our pasts, about our shameful acts, our rebellion um, before coming to know Jesus Christ. And it wasn't um, a boastful conversation. It was really a, a one in which we were just being transparent with one another in this Bible study as guys. And one guy kind of got up and he, he was offended. And he said, you know, I don't talk about my past. I don't like to talk about my past. I just focus on the future. That's what the Bible calls us to just focus on the future. And I remember thinking to myself, I get it. I get what he's saying. The fact that we shouldn't focus on the past before Christ and how we lived our lives in rebellion and our shameful sin in a way that paralyzes us, right? That renders us ineffective for serving the Lord because our salvation isn't based upon us, right? Our unworthy sinners. But I began to think, you do want to remember as a Christian where you've been so that it becomes a powerful testimony, not of how terrible of a person you were, but how terrible of a person you were and how powerful God is and what he's done in your life, right? That's why we should revisit and think about where God has brought us from. And so that's what Paul does here. He, talks, he reminds us of our past condition in verses 1 through 3 to show God's power in us. And he does it very purposefully. He talks about this is who you used to be, verses 1 through 3. For what purpose? To accentuate and to highlight and underscore the great power of God in your life. That it were not for God, you would still be in verses 1 through 3. Right? Notice. How do we summarize our former manner of life? Verse 1 of chapter 2. And you, Christian, were, past tense, dead in your trespasses and sins. I mean, you talk about a, a, a way, a metaphor to describe our former condition. We were, Paul says, spiritually dead. That is, outside of Christ, we were all spiritually dead. Now listen, I know you've been to funerals, right? I've been to many funerals. Sadly, I've been around many dead people in my lifetime. I've been around friends, brethren who have passed away, people I didn't know, even family members, biological mother, a brother, a cousin, family members who passed away. I've been to those funerals. I've done some funerals. And I've seen people go up to that, to those caskets, especially when they, don't, they know that they didn't know the Lord, and cry out, why? Weeping, going over and mourning. Why? Why are you gone? I've heard people cry that way. And you know what is true about every single dead body that I've ever been around? They don't respond to, to external stimuli, right? They don't respond. 
They're unresponsive. There's no movement. There's nothing you can do. No degree of emotion that you can express to bring them back to life. Paul says, that was you, Christian, spiritually speaking, outside of Christ. You were spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. And what was the proof? Well, your conduct, look at verse 2, in which you formerly, in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked. Again, that's a metaphor for your lifestyle, for your conduct. This is how you walked. You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in, in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly, before Christ, lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and, and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Powerful language, huh? Walked. This is how you formerly lived, verse 3. You were a person who loved the world, who loved the world's system around you, who were on Satan's side, going along with the sons of disobedience. That is describing people who are outside of Christ, who lived in disobedience as lawbreakers against God, their creator. You lived following. You were on that hell-bound path. You lived following and giving into your lust. That is your evil desires. You indulged. You gave in to your sinful desires. You didn't care about what God thought about your sin, that you were sinning against your Creator, a holy and just God who had created you for His glory and for your good. You ignored Him. You lived without Him. Outside of Christ, notice in verse 3 at the end of it, we were by nature... Children of what? Of what, beloved? Of wrath, even as the rest. According to Romans chapter 1, all of those outside of Christ are under God's present wrath. They show that in the fact that they don't acknowledge God, and God has given them over to their corruption and their sin. But one day they will experience the fullness of God's wrath for their rejection of Him. That's where we were. Beloved brother and sister in Christ this morning. This is who you were. You were by nature a child of wrath. And what are you now? A child of God, right? Completely the opposite. This was our past condition outside of the Lord Jesus. But listen. This is some of you this morning. This is some of you this morning. And you know deep down in the recesses of your heart who you are you know that you're outside of Christ. You live for yourself. You live to indulge in the desires of your flesh. You don't care about what God thinks about the way that you're living. You live autonomously. You live as if you are free, but you're not free as we talked about last week, right? There's no neutral ground. You're either on the dark side or on walking in the light, right? You're either on Satan's side or you're on God's side. Even if you're indifferent to these things, it doesn't matter. You're on one side or the other. You are by nature a child of wrath. This is where you are. Listen, you're a rebel sinner. Spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. Listen to me, you are an idolater. You know why? Because your Creator created you to worship Him and to love Him, not to live for yourself. 
Not to put yourself on the throne room of your own heart. That is where God belongs. He should be the center and the circumference of everything in your life. But that is not how you're living your life. You're without God and without hope in this world. You're hell-bound. You're hell-bound. And listen, don't deceive yourself. Don't think that you can continue to live that way. And that even if you're experiencing temporary happiness and fulfillment, that that is a permanent thing. That will eventually die out, right? Many of us who are here, who are Christians, can tell you it wasn't worth it. Was it, Christian? It wasn't worth it. Is Christ worth it? Absolutely. With all the suffering and the trials and the difficulties, amen, preach it, right? I would rather have Jesus than anything else in this world, right? I have rather have Him in me and I in Him than me be in the world living to fulfill my lusts, my evil desires, and one day experience eternal separation from God my Maker in a real place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth called hell. And I don't want you to go there. Because listen, I was there in that place as well. I was hell-bound too. Isn't that what Paul's point is here in verses 1 through 3? This is comprehensive. This is, this is, no one is excluded from verses 1 through 3. Some of us are either there living in one, verses 1 through 3, or we were there prior to coming to know Jesus. Listen, the Bible says, if you have not committed your life to Christ, the Bible says in Hebrews 9.27 that it is appointed It has been decided ahead of time for men or women to die once and after this comes judgment. It's done. Your first death is the least of your problems, the least of your worries. It's the second death, right? It's when you, after you die physically, this first death, you will stand before your judge. Well, this is really, really bad news, isn't it? It's really, really bad news. One day we're going to face our maker. One day we're going to face our maker. But I'm so grateful, especially this morning, to tell you this. There is good news, isn't there? There is good news because verses 4 and following tell us that God stepped into our darkness. If verses 1 through 3 describes who we were outside of Christ, verse 4 describes what God did, what God has done in verses 4 through 6. Notice, but God. Verse 4, but God I mean, these are mind-boggling words. They're, they're some of the greatest words in all of Scripture. These signal the fact that God intervened into our darkness and spiritual wickedness. That God came in and, listen to me, He performed a rescue operation for sinners who were spiritually dead, unresponsive to truth, unresponsive to life, and He came to give us life. That's what He's come to do. Now he's going to tell us what God did in verses 5 and following, but notice, why did he do it? Why did God step in to perform a rescue operation? Notice, but God being rich in mercy. Because of his great love with which, I mean, you think Paul loves to just pile on words? Here he goes again. It's not just mercy, but rich in mercy God is. 
It's not just that he's loving, but he's great. He's a great lover of people, right? Great love, rich in mercy. And then I love this. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, I love that. I love that Paul once again reminds us. This is God's motivation. And just to accentuate the richness of God's mercy and the greatness of God's love, remember that God stepped in even when we were dead in our transgressions. When we were not seeking Him, beloved. Paul wants to continue to accentuate the power of God in us. He says, you know how rich in mercy, how great in love God is? He stepped in even when you weren't seeking Him. Mm-mm-mm-mm. We can't even begin to understand such mercy, right? We can't even begin to understand, beloved, such love. Oh, the greatness of God's love. You know why? Because our human tendency is to love those who are lovable. To love those who are attractive. To love those who are who we deem worthy of our love. Maybe those who scratch our back and we scratch their back in return. Maybe those who please us. We tend and are driven as human beings in our natural state to love those whom we see that are worthy of our love and affection, of our forgiveness, and so forth and so forth. But God... He's completely the opposite. He has loved, listen to me, rebels sitting here in the sanctuary, right? Former rebels, former murderers of thoughts, former immoral people, former liars, former slanderers. God has stepped in and loved you in Christ Jesus, right? And he didn't sweep our sin under the rug, did he? Who did he nail to the cross and curse for our sins? His own son. But then who did he raise from the dead? Christ. Victoriously over sin and death. What motivation? This is who God is. He, act, he acts and expresses these, these actions in accordance with who he is in his nature, right? Loving and merciful and gracious. Now what did he do? What did he do? This is His power at work in us. Verse 5, He, notice who the actor is here every time, He, God the Father, made us alive, spiritually speaking, together with Christ. We were awakened from spiritual death. Verse 6, He, God the Father, raised us up with Christ. Verse 7, He, God the Father, seated us with Him in the heavenly places. Let me ask you something. Does this sound familiar? This he raised us up with Him. He seated us with Him in the heaven. Where have you seen those, that terminology before? Back in chapter 1, verse 20, right? Notice, verse 20, which God brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Listen to me. The parallel is there. One flows from the other. Just as God has showed His power in Christ, He has shown His power in raising us from spiritual death. There's your parallel. There's your connection. But notice two things about God's actions, right? God blesses us only and exclusively in union with who? With Jesus. In relationship 
with Christ, in connection with Christ. When you have turned from your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ, that's when God is now for you, justifies you, forgives you, reconciles you to himself only by faith in Christ. There is no other name that has been given among men by which we must be saved except the name of Christ. Christ. All of these things, making us alive, raising us, seating us, happens with Christ, in Christ only and exclusively. Only in Christ. Verse 5, notice, He made us alive together with Him, Christ. Verse 6, He raised us up with Him, with Christ. Verse 6, He seated us with Him, Christ, in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. You think He's trying to make a point? Nothing, there is no drop of blessing that falls outside of Christ upon anyone. It all flows from Him. He is the fountain of living waters. He is the pearl of great price. Right? There's no forgiveness of sins apart from Jesus Christ. And what activates, from a human standpoint, what activates God's Mercy toward you as a forgiven sinner is that you put your trust in Jesus. That is a commitment, not a momentary profession of faith. It is a commitment, a genuine commitment from the heart, whereby you recognize and see your sin, that you are a sinner who has committed mutiny and rebellion against the holy God, and you know that you have no hope, that there are no good works, no religion, no church attendance, no anything that can ever make you right before this holy God except Jesus Christ finished work on the cross alone. It's faith in Jesus alone, right? There's no blessing that falls upon us outside of faith in Jesus. And then notice, for those who put their trust in Jesus, we are the recipients or the objects of God's gracious blessing, right? Notice this. Chapter 2, verse 4. We don't deserve this. He loved who? Us. Chapter 2, verse 5, He made us alive. By grace, you have been saved. Chapter 2, verse 6, He raised us up, seated us with Him. Do we deserve it, beloved? We don't deserve anything. What's the point? We who were hell-bound sinners have become the recipients, the objects of God's love in Christ. That is what, beloved, we celebrate today, this morning. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you and I are loved. God is for us in Christ if we put our trust alone in Him, right? We're loved by Him. Paul says, you want to know how powerful God is? Not only did He raise Jesus from the dead, but He has raised you, formerly spiritually dead sinner, from spiritual oblivion, from spiritual death. He's raised you from the dead. And why did He do it ultimately? Look at verse 7. So that, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know what is the ultimate purpose for why God has redeemed, bought out of slavery to sin for himself, a people for himself, the church? It is to display his amazing grace. His amazing grace. Please remember, first and foremost, God didn't first and foremost deliver you, rescue you from your sin so that you would escape hell. He rescued you first and foremost for His glory. 
To display His grace. What is grace? Unmerited, undeserved kindness and favor for those who deserve wrath and condemnation. Undeserved, unmerited favor and kindness. Grace are God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's free to us. It wasn't free to Christ, right? Cost him his life. Cost him his life. Oh, salvation is by grace, beloved. It's not of us. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Oh, we understand this, don't we? There's nothing that we have brought to the table except empty hands of faith. Oh, Lord, here's my sin. Please, please forgive me. Empty hands of faith. No good works. No personal merits. No anything. No acts of service. No church attendance. None of those things can make you right before a holy God. It's empty hands of faith whereby you trust in Jesus alone, knowing that He is the great sin bearer and wrath absorber. And in Him and Him alone can you be made right with God. Only in Christ. Not as a result of work so that no one may boast. And then notice, even now, as Christians, anything good that we do, don't become proud and thinking that, oh, I'm such a great guy. I'm such a great lady. Look at all my spiritual gifts. Look at all the good works. Look at all the service that I do in comparison to others. Listen to me. There's nothing that you do that God hasn't empowered you to do. It's all for his glory, isn't it? All for his glory. Look at verse 10. For we Christians are his workmanship. That's the word from which we get Poem, poema, workmanship, masterpiece. We are his masterpiece. Whose masterpiece? God's. Created in Christ Jesus. Notice, very important here, for good works. Not on the basis of good works, right? For good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You know what the resurrection reminds me of this morning, beloved? That not only has God delivered me from dead works, but He has raised me unto good deeds which bring Him glory. I have a mission to fulfill on this earth. I have service to do for His glory, and it should be a delight for all of us to serve Him, right? He has raised us up unto four good works which He prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Listen, perhaps you can't say this morning that you are living for Christ. Perhaps you're living in sin and rebellion. You are the person who is convicted right now and says, I am verses 1 through 3. I am verses 1 through 3. Can I remind you, there is hope for you as there was for me. There is hope in that you need to turn from your self-idolatry and wicked ways and embrace God's free gift of forgiveness found in Christ alone, right? There is hope for the greatest of sinners. There is forgiveness no matter what you've done. If you are truly broken and convicted in your heart over the fact that you've offended your holy and just creator, listen, God, because of his great mercy and love, has displayed his grace by crushing his son on the cross for sinners just like you and I, right? Trust in him today. Trust in him today. And for those of us who have and continue to trust in the exalted Christ, Listen, we remember today, beloved, that this world 
is not our home. This world is not our home. In the midst of so much taking place in our country, in the midst of so much wreaking of havoc all over the world, in the in the all the persecution taking place globally toward Christians, remember that this is not your home as a believer. How often do we live in the light of the resurrection? That one day, if Jesus said he would rise from the dead, and he did, he also said, I am coming back, aren't I? Acts chapter 1. That's what the angels told his disciples as they were watching Jesus ascend and disappear into the clouds in Acts chapter 1. The the, the angels say to them, what are you looking at? This one who has disappeared will come in just the same way as he left. He's going to come back in physical, bodily, glorified form. Guess what? To deliver the final death blow to his enemies, and we will be with our king. Amen? This world is not our home. I end with Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. Listen to Paul's words to the Philippian believers. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here it is, ready? Who will transform the body, this body, of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Speaking about our future resurrection as Christians, That all of us will one day be raised by King Jesus and be given glorified bodies and we will be home with Him. Amen? Amen. That is our hope, beloved. That's what the resurrection of Christ signifies for us as far as future eschatological realities, end time realities, right? That we have a sure hope and expectation that our King will return and we will be with Him. Father, oh Lord, such glorious truths. O Lord, as Paul prayed for his fellow Ephesian believers, Lord, I pray for us this morning that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened, that we would have spiritual eyes to see, that we would be reminded of the hope of your calling. What are the riches of the glory of your inheritance in us, that we are your inheritance? And what is the surpassing greatness of your power shown in Christ? and shown in us. Father, help us to live victoriously in the light of the resurrection of Christ. Help us to be people who share Christ, who tell others about Him, who glow for Christ on this earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.